Good afternoon and welcome to the 142nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will discuss comedy in the age of COVID-19 with Kurt Brownoller. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 6th, 2020, there are 1,045,563 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,467,186 cases in the United States. That's up from 7,433,828 cases reported yesterday. And there are now a total of 210,355 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 209,881 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Ken Shimura, one of Japan's most famous comedians, dies at 70 after contracting coronavirus. This was published April 7th by Eric Grossman in Market Watch. A household name in his native Japan, Ken Shimura's popularity bridged generations. The comedian was a constant fixture on Japanese television for the better part of five decades, rarely straying from his crowd-pleasing brand of comedy skits. Yet, despite the outlandish nature of his most famous characters, the rubber-faced funny man was sometimes referred to as Japan's Robin Williams. He was known to be somewhat shy and quiet when not performing. Shimura's half-century run as one of Japan's most recognizable comedians ended March 29, when he died at the age of 70 due to pneumonia caused by COVID-19. Upon being admitted to a Tokyo hospital on March 20, after developing a fever and experiencing respiratory problems, Shimura was diagnosed with severe pneumonia. A day later, he was put on a ventilator and never regained consciousness. On March 23rd, it was announced Shimura had tested positive for COVID-19, thus becoming the first prominent Japanese entertainment figure to be diagnosed with the virus. I don't think he imagined he would die a death like this. I'm sure he was working hard with his sense of mission to deliver laughter to people, said a representative of Izawa office, Shimura's talent agency. I hope you will remember him and laugh. Until the end, he was committed to presenting laughter to people. Born Yasunori Shimura on February 20th, 1950 in Higashi Murayama, Tokyo, Shimura's comedic aspirations grew after seeing his father, a strict judo instructor being captivated by televised comedy shows. After completing his education, Shimura went on to join one of Japan's most famous comedy groups, The Drifters, in 1974. The outfit, which started as a rock and roll band a decade earlier, achieved lasting notoriety in June of 1966 when it served as the opening act for the Beatles' first ever Japan performance at Tokyo's famed Budokan Arena. Shimura joined The Drifters joined after the Drifters had shifted their focus to comedy and become a primetime TV sensation with Hachi, Jidayo, Zen, and Shugo. It's eight o'clock, everybody get together, which ran from 1969 to 1985. One of the most beloved variety shows in Japanese history, Hachi, Jidayo drew record high ratings at its peak, roughly 50% of the country's TVs tuned into the program, thanks to a brand of slapstick, lowbrow humor that made it especially popular with children, much to the dismay of parents. Many considered it to be the Japanese counterpart to the Benny Hill show. Soon after he began playing guitar in the group, Shimura developed his acting skills with the other members, and it wasn't long before he demonstrated a gift for comedy. 
Sumura's youthful energy helped the drifters achieve new heights. In interviews, he referenced the Marx Brothers and Jerry Lewis as inspirations. His emotive style, in which he utilized exaggerated bodily movements and facial expressions, helped him appeal to non-Japanese audiences as well. Shimura was particularly famous for his Chaplin-esque mustache dance. In 1986, Shimura teamed up with fellow drifter Cha Kato for the series Kato-chan Kenchan Gokigen TV, fun TV with Kato-chan and Kenchan, which enjoyed a successful run until 1992. The program included a segment in which viewers were encouraged to submit amusing video clips from their home movies, an idea conceived by Shimura. This format was introduced to American viewers by ABC when it launched America's Funniest Home Videos. In 2006, Shimura launched his own comedy theater, ShimuraCon, Shimura's Spirit, while 2007 saw him gain new fans by hosting Tensai Shimura Dubutsun, Genius Shimura Zoo, a weekly primetime animal show in which he shared the spotlight with dogs and monkeys. Shimura remained active right up until his passing, starring in numerous TV programs, Though he rarely performed as a conventional actor prior to his death, Shimura had landed his first starring film role in Kinema no Kamisama, God of Cinema, a comedy from the legendary director Yoji Yamada. Shimura was also scheduled to carry the Olympic flame, representing his hometown of Higashi Moriyama during the torch relay for the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which were postponed to 2021 due to the virus epidemic. On YouTube, his clips have garnered millions of views, with many of his most famous appearances dubbed in multiple languages. Shimura's unexpected death sent shockwaves throughout Japan as the nation grappled with the global pandemic. News and talk shows offered dedicated coverage to his life and death, with a mix of his contemporaries and much younger celebrities paying tribute, while reminding audiences of Shimura's multi-generational appeal. Groups of fans and media congregated outside the hospital where Shimura died, and a televised tribute on April 1st was viewed by more than 40 million people across his homeland. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. I'm very excited to speak with Kurt Brownoller. Kurt is a comedian, actor, and writer who once crowdfunded a sky rider to write, How Do I Land in the Sky Above Los Angeles? He's been seen in movies, The Big Sick and Long Shot, as well as Fox's Bob's Burgers, Showtime's Black Monday, and Netflix's Lady Dynamite. He hosts a strange news podcast called Bananas, as well as the long-running, 15 years now, variety show Hot Tub with Kurt and Kristen. Kurt Brunneler, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Uh, I'm calling in from Los Angeles and uh, on the surface of it, pandemic seems in my neighborhood, at least people are wearing masks. Um, people are wearing masks like for walks outside by themselves when no one else is around. Uh, which is like a very, I feel like an, like an abundance of caution, but a nice sign. Um, the more, the, 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 the thing that's more impacting, I feel now, since we've been in this for so long is the smoke. There's still smoke in the air from the wildfires that just don't stop burning. Uh, they don't stop burning, Scott. You're not prepared for that. No. Your recent, somewhat recent trans, uh, transplant to Los Angeles. Yeah. And also it's like one more, you know, it's like the only thing we could do. I have two children under the age of three. The only thing we could do was go outside. And then the air got so bad that we could no longer go outside. So no, not only could we not do anything, but now we're also trapped inside this house. And it is, it's, it's crazy making. It's the air has gotten better in the past couple of days, but whoo, it's rough. It's a form of lockdown that I think people don't, can't really fully comprehend unless they've lived through something like that. Yeah. I, I'm I fingers crossed. My kids don't remember it because they're three in one. Uh, my three-year-old will remember it. She talks about the coronavirus constantly. Really? She does. What did she say about it? This morning she was just saying, she's like, you know what I love? I love the good coronavirus. And we're like, what's that? And she's like, it fights the bad coronavirus. And we're like, 
And and then it's like you're in this parenting like dilemma of like, do you explain that there's no good coronavirus? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or do you like try and say like the coronavirus isn't good or bad? It's just a virus that's living out its life cycle. Like that's too complicated. We just settled for like there's the virus and there's a vaccine, and the vaccine, you know, fights the virus. That's kind of the, what we're trying to explain to her. But every time we say the word vaccine, she's just like, I don't want to get a shot. <laughs> And we're just like, you don't, you don't have to, other people will get it first. And so then she started going like, I can't wait for all those other people to get this vaccine. I'm not getting it. Which is all of a sudden a weird political statement from my daughter. I feel like you have all of American politics playing out in yeah. your living room, but with a three-year-old. I also hadn't thought of the perspective of the anti, I mean, of course there's anti-vax, <laughs> but, but the, the sort of really really young anti-vax. He's were, real anti-vax. <laughs> anti-vax in a much more hardcore sense, like stay away from me with that kind of anti-vax. Yeah. yeah. I think Absolutely. most three-year-olds are anti-vax. That's a funny idea. I love it. You've um, been I doing, how long have you, you did improv, I mean, you've been doing improv your whole career. You've been doing it a long time now. Uh-huh. And your first, your daughter sort of gave you a total yes and moment. And your first impulse was like, nah, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, because that's the thing. Like, I sometimes get into trouble when I'm like, when I'm just like going with it, you know? Yeah. Um, because there's like, there's a, there's like this. Can we curse on this? Is it? Is it? Yeah. yeah there's this piece of shit kid, uh, that she, she she goes to daycare with who nobody likes, and she like he scratched her or something, and then I started telling her because that we were just talking about, it, and she's like, why is he even there? Because he's like older and stuff. Uh, and I was like, well, once we get this vaccine, he'll go back to kindergarten. So that's a reason to hope for the vaccine, get this kid out of there. And then of course, like she went in and started like telling everybody you're only here because of the coronavirus. <laughs> and so it's now I'm like, I have to like, what now it's like that idea of like trying to yes and, but also watching what I'm saying, because it gets in, interpreted in a three-year-old brain and then repeated, uh, usually getting me in trouble. I mean, like obvious uh, parallels to the kinds of communication strategies that Trump's team must have to deal with are, are right there. Right? Yeah. Like, we know it's going to make it to the media. We just don't know in what format. So we got to be careful how we say it. Yeah, it just bumps around a bunch of cobwebs and then comes out <laughs> crazy. Um, so, well, thanks for making time to come on this today. I don't know. I, you and I have known each other for, for a long time. Yeah. And um, I was just had been wanting to talk with you uh, in part because so many of these COVID calls are really we're talking with epidemiologists and public health researchers. And we've been talking about structural racism and we've been talking about every disaster that's happening in this big complex. We've done multiple on wildfires, for example. Uh -huh. um, and I know, you know, you're engaged in all those issues too, but you come at them through your own craft. And so I want to, I mean, that's kind of what I want to talk about today is how a comedian looks at disaster, how a comedian looks at, at this world. And I want to work around to it. It's kind of a big question to take on, but I guess the first thing I just want to ask you is like, what's it been like to do comedy at this time? I mean, even just the logistics of it. Cause you, you do club, I mean, you do everything, but I know you do clubs and that must be off the table right now, right? Yeah, there's no, Live performance, I mean, like, it's different uh, in New York City, I mean, like, right now. Uh, but I think that's going to change soon. Uh, people are doing some outside shows in L.A., some outside shows in New York City, um, but a few and far between. There's some clubs that have, like, outside seating going on. But for the most part, every comedian I know is not working. The only shows we do are Zoom shows. Which is like it is the it is the shadow against the wall. It is not. It's just like it's not doing stand up comedy, you know. And it's it's like this weird approximation of doing stand up comedy. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've still because we, we have been doing hot tub with me and Kristen Shaw. We, we started hot tub fifteen years ago, and we've you know been doing it every Monday night for fifteen years. And so we didn't want to stop during this, so we went virtual with it on Twitch. And it's just, uh, I mean, the, the, the experience of it is not great, I mm -hmm. think. 
from a performance standpoint. I have no idea how it is to watch. Um, but also to figure out what to talk about is interesting because there is an exhaustion. By the time you get to 8 p.m. at night and you want to watch a comedy show, you're not watching a comedy show to, you're watching a comedy show to relax because it's so stressful and tense. And so there's this like fine line you you walk between talking about the 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 pandemic and not talking about it. And I kind of have both because Kristen and I usually talk about the pandemic or talk about whatever's going on in the news and our, mm-hmm. and like our opening riff, we don't write it. We're just improvising. But then with my podcast bananas, that's all we never mention the pandemic. Like it has never been mentioned. It's only strange news and it's much sillier. And I think right now people want something that has nothing to do with the insane torrent of horror that they see every single day. They just want to take a little bit of a break. Um, you know, but that's also my style of comedy as well is it's never, it's never really about current events, uh, with me. Have you done zoom stand up solo during this time? Yep. I just did a, there was a comedy festival, Plano comedy festival, Um, which Close I was to supposed to do in yeah. person. Yeah. Um, then they went virtual. So I did that on Sunday, did like a half hour set and they have like people in the zoom, but you know, some of them are muted. Some of them aren't, some of them are talking, you know, it's just, it's like every audience member has a microphone, which is crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> it's a nightmare scenario. Yeah. But, but I mean, when you, when you do, when you do your stand up, I mean, well, let's start with improv. Mm-hmm. So, have you tried to do any improv in this in this format? No, because I don't really do like when, when Kristen and I doing hot tub. That's us improvising. That's, you're improvising. Top, okay. You know, like we're not n- nothing's written, so that's kind of improv. But like doing scenes and stuff like that, I kind of have left that world yeah. for you know since I started stand up really, so, which was fifteen years ago. And the material when you're doing stand up, I assume you know much of it is very well worked out bits. And and then some of it must be kind of things you're working out while you're there, right? I mean, yeah. If I'm doing a long set, then it's like if I'm headlining, like I was headlining a night for the comedy festival, then that's all stuff that was written. Uh, that's like it's it's written. I, I know it. I know it works. But then for hot tub, that's where I try stuff out. So I you know, see. like last night I did probably five new minutes of brand new jokes. And it's frustrating because you kind of don't know if they work or not. So it's right. very difficult to be continually writing stand-up during this time where you're not, you just, you don't have like, usually I would get up and try, you know, you know, do five new minutes and be like, okay, I've got two minutes that definitely works and I need to rework these three things or throw them out. Now I'm like, I don't know. I don't know which, what of this works or not works because it's like nine people in the Zoom audience and right. nine people's right. not enough to get... Right a wide enough berth of people's opinions and experiences to find out whether or not it works with a crowd. Is that, I mean, are you hearing other comedians say the same thing? I mean, I, I don't know how you, how you work out your material. You were describing, you know, a lot of it, you, you have it to a point and then you start, you work with, you put it yeah. out on stage, you see what's working and what isn't. I mean, how is any comedian working at this time if they don't, I mean, you a lot a of people of, just aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I wasn't, I wasn't writing standup for a long time, which is rare. You know, it's like, you know, I've just been writing standup for 15 years. And so probably for six months, five months, I just was like, why? I can't find out if any of this works. I don't want to have a hundred jokes and I don't know what, you know, that I don't know if any of them work or not. And you can try them out on, on Twitter, but you know, there's no delivery. There's no timing on Twitter. Um, so yeah, so I uh, I just started doing it because I'm going to record a special, I think in Jan- in January outside. Oh. Um, so it'll be an outside show, socially distanced, safe, and everything, um, with like under a hundred people because I think that's the limit right now in LA for a live show. And because of that, I'm like, okay, I got to start writing some stuff. But I think I might have to do a tour of outdoor venues soon to make sure this stuff works. Well, that was the question I was leading up to. I mean, 
you know, you get back out there and like you said, you said, well, I'll just take advantage of this time, which I'm locked down. I'll write an hour and then you get out there on stage. I'm not saying this would happen to you, but it could happen to a theoretical comedian mm -hmm. and none of it lands because <clears throat> you haven't had that interaction oh, with yeah. people. So you're finding and, other ways to do it. And also even, not even that, like I've heard stories because there was this like set of half hours that were going to be recorded before the pandemic and then the pandemic happened and then this the, the production company like figured out a way to do it um but the way that they could do it was that they the audience was hired extras uh and they all had they were all tested and they were all employed but they were like hired extras not comedy fans so then all these comics came up and did their like 30 minutes to essentially a bunch of like bored extras and that was even material that was written before the pandemic, you know? Well, that sounds um, like a Kim Jong-un comedy club or something. Oh, it was, yeah. <laughs> I heard from one comic who was just like, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you also have the constraints of the yeah. of shooting and production during the pandemic, in addition to the constraints of content production during the pan pandemic. That was the other thing I wanted to ask you about. So like, what does it look like for, because it's a big constellation of people who work in the business you're in, and only a small percentage of them are up on stage. I mean, most yeah. of them are in the production business. What's it? What's that like for them right now? Are they able to work? Well, yes, there are. Production is slowly starting up. Like I, I'm doing a Disney show next week, um, and it's like a ton of testing. They have rapid testing, and it also depends on how big the show is and how scaled it is. I've heard that Amazon has like, they, they have the ability now to do 200 uh, rapid tests a day um, for, uh, and so then that means like every, like, uh, you know, everyone who's, and Kristen, my, my comedy partner, she's in Vancouver right now shooting a, a show for Hulu. Mm -hmm. And she says, it's like, I, she's in a tent outside by herself at all times. And then she like walks on, like there's nobody sitting around on Apple boxes on set. It's just, like the director and the and the DP and that's it. All everyone else is cleared out to their sections. And if and you're in groups, and those groups are the only ones that are allowed to mingle. So if one group is on set, another other groups can't be on set. And you're only allowed to like talk to the people who are in your like specific group, and you're all tested every day or every other day. It's crazy. It's what I imagine like doing comedy in a prison camp or something. Must be like. <laughs> yeah. They tell you they only be with the six people, and they've got you being watched and yeah. I mean, it's, it just feels like so much of the informality that makes the overall kind of atmosphere of what you do, you don't, you don't have that anymore. That informality is, is gone. And also people want to, people aren't going to laugh if they don't feel safe. Do you know what I mean? If they're yeah. <laughs> like the laughter comes from comfortable, being comfortable. That's why alcohol right. is served at comedy clubs. Um, and yeah, that's, an, that's another thing too. You can't have alcohol served. Uh, cause you can't take your mask off during the show, uh, which is weirdly like, that's a, that's an issue. Like people, people, there's a reason comedy clubs have a yeah. two drink minimum other than, you know, other than that's the business model. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> well, what about, you know, the other venues that are available? I mean, internet comedy is not a brand new thing. Um, you know, people are making all kinds of products for yeah every different kind of social media and internet media that's out there. Right. I mean, is yeah. that where, I mean, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but I mean, can comedy clubs come back from this? I mean, is this the inflection point in which every comedian coming up has got to have their own uh, product line for Twitter, TikTok, blog, podcast? Oh, it's, it's kind of been that way for a sort while. Of, anyway, sort of like yeah, there's very few just like, road dogs who are only doing live comedy. You know, you kind of have to have all of those things anyway, but this pushes it even further. And to answer your question, yes, like this is going to be the death of, I don't know, 50% of the venues in America, I think. Really? I mean, that's, that's my guess, but if, you know, how long can they hold out? It's, I don't think fully, I, the, all of their, you know, business models are like, um, on a razor's edge, you know, they're only making money if they can sell out their Saturday night, uh, 
early show and their Friday night late early show. You know, like that's like the guarantee. Like every comedy club can sell out those two slots, then they're going to be okay. Um, on like 25% capacity or 50% capacity, even if it's, if they're allowed to open in that, in that county. So yeah, I just don't, I don't, I think it's going to be, you know, but it's happened before. Like the eighties, there was just like this big, huge spike in comedy clubs where like every small town had a comedy club. And then because of that, people would go to comedy clubs and see bad comedians because there was, there's so many space, so much stage time. They just had to throw people up. And then the idea of standup was that it was bad because there was too many stages and then it just super shrunk in the nineties. And that's when the kind of alternative comedy started up in places that aren't traditional comedy clubs, which is kind of the scene that I came up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then now it's like that explosion again because of podcasts. So now there's all of these, there's comedy clubs everywhere. Um, So it is, uh, I think it's a cyclical restriction, but it's a contraction, uh, you know, forced by the pandemic, but also a contraction that I think was going to come at some point. There's this weird geographical effect, right? I mean, because we're a country, I think we're still a country uh, Mm -hmm. with 50 states and 50 pandemics, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I haven't looked at the rules, but I presumed that if you're really like a ro- working road comic, or if that was a big chunk of your income, um, you're working Texas, Florida, uh, Alabama, Oklahoma. I don't know. You're not working the West Coast, and you're not working the East Coast, and you're not yeah. working the Great Lakes. I mean, that's kind of a strange, uh, maybe weird, unintended consequence that yeah. uh, those clubs maybe are open in those places. I don't know. You found yourself missing playing uh, Tuscaloosa, oh. and, and I miss you- I miss touring. You know, I miss. Go- I mean, I think we all miss going places. I heard you know, like uh, what was it? I think Virgin Australia sold a flight to nowhere for a seven a seven hour flight to nowhere, and it sold out in like. 15 seconds. I saw that, but I didn't read behind the headline. That was like, you literally just sit on a plane and they bring you a meal and, and you sit there. And it takes then... off. It takes off, flies around and lands again. Oh, I'm a terrible consumer. I would have just gone and sat on the plane. <laughs> they did do that. They did that somewhere else uh, where you could just go and sit on a plane for an hour, which uh, seems so as a person who has to fly all the time, the last part I miss yeah. about travel is the actual traveling. Um, but I do miss like going to a town and, you know, being there for four days and doing six shows. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I've had the same thing. I've missed places. I didn't think I would miss. Oh yeah. I've been, yes, go ahead. You know what I mean? No, I just like for, I was, you know, doing research and, and, uh, there's a town in, in Western Pennsylvania, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is not like a tourist Mecca. Yeah. It's a cool place and I've missed it so much. <laughs> I just wanted to get there. You know, mm-hmm. it's completely irrational, but in my mind, I'm like, I can't go to Johnstown. Trump, <laughs> what if, you know, I'm so enraged about it. It is so irrational. I'm not trying to get to Maui and I'm not trying yeah. to get to Disney world. I just want to get to Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. I remember I was like, I'll it's the small in, uh, like uh, incidental, inc- or not incidental, but like not important incident moments uh, would just jump into my mind from touring like every day, like a different town where I'll just be like, remember that field that I walked through in Rally Door? You know, like that was a, I love that field. I'd love to go back there, you know, or like yeah. thinking about a Target in Minnesota that I went to. <laughs> Like, I remember I bought a water bottle at that Target in Minnesota and thinking about that, like that kind of stuff is the stuff that I miss the most, those kind of uh, incidental moments. You've also done a lot of comedy about airports or I mean, you, yeah. I don't know how much, but I mean, that's been something that comes up a lot in your work. I mean, you have a great well, bit about- two, I have two jokes, Scott. I have two jokes about airports. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe because I like them, it feels like a bigger percentage of your corpus. I'm not sure, but, but um, that one, the one about being in the airport with the- No, Flip I can't flop? do it. Yeah, that's yeah. more than just a joke. That's a long bit. It's still a joke. It's it's still one okay. joke. Sorry. It is a four it's a five joke minute. unit. It's a, Sorry. Minute, it's a five minute bit, probably. Yeah. 
Yeah. So no airport material right now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you can live with that. I can live uh, with that. want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls we're talking about comedy in the age of the pandemic today with Kurt Brownell or got a question in from Jorge Benavides Rawson which um, is a really good insight back to what we were just talking about the razor thin edge of comedy clubs right now and sort of having to find a new venue in which to do your work Jorge's raising this issue about how that may be in some ways similar to what educators are going through we have to hold an audience in this Zoom space. And um, at the same time, some of the financial pressures are the same too. If we can't get the students back yeah, pretty soon, you're gonna see a lot of universities and colleges, it's already started to happen, are yeah. gonna go out of business. So crazy, it's so great. Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a buddy who works at uh, the University of Richmond and they started, in student classes and I was talking to him I was like that seems crazy he's like if we don't do it like th that's how this place exists <laughs> if there's not students then what happens and I'm like oh right yeah <laughs> the question was whether or not students can find as much meaning out of their college experience in the way we're having this conversation right now as they can being in the classroom with a teacher in the dorm with their friends and i think i think it's too soon to say i mean kind of similar to comedy i think it's it maybe is a little too soon to say what the longer term picture is going to be here i'm but. gonna i'm a wager a guess here okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, that university, they yeah. can't it's not going to be the same it's not yeah. well not and i 50, think it's no not for fifty thousand dollars a year for sure no and it is weird too like uh if the technology for vr were better like that's what could fill this gap um, and I do see like that being the next thing. Cause we're all getting used to just being now at home and kind of doing everything at home. Like Lauren, my, my wife does these online exercise classes and it's $15 a month. And she has access to all of these online exercise classes. She's like, gyms are done. She's like, I used to pay $120 to go to a Pilates class four times a week or four right. times a month. And now I can go twice a, I can go twice a day for $15 a month. There's no, like all of those places are gonna go away as well. And I think VR is gonna fill that gap of this stuff that we're talking about is literally just gonna be seen as uh, a tech issue and not a fundamental problem. I hadn't thought about that. I, mean, I talked to the Dean about that, the sort of VR classroom. I'm sure somebody's probably already doing that. That's they must be, right? Point. Yeah, they must be. Um, let me ask you about bananas. So you- yeah. Let's you talk said, about the dumb news show I have. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> no, but, but because something you said, and that's what I wanted to raise is really tantalizing about this, is you have consciously not engaged the pandemic. So here's yes. a new, pro, here's a new thing you're doing. And Came out um, right after the pandemic started. Started, yeah. yeah. And tell us what it is and tell us why you're not talking about the elephant in the room. Yeah, I mean, it's not, we're not reinventing the wheel. It's just strange news uh, from around the world. Uh, and we have guests on and we kind of, we do six news stories per hour. Uh, and we kind of, there's a little mini interview element with our guest. Uh, but then also we're just kind of like talking about these dumb, strange, fascinating, we call it like inspirationally weird news stories. Things that are, and it's not making fun of these people or fun of the things. It's more trying to identify with them and uh, and kind of like find them uh, beautiful. You tell us an example of, of one of these. People can check it out on on their own. They can find it on the. Tell us where they find it. Uh, they you can find it anywhere you find podcasts. It's on the Exactly Right Network, the home to my favorite murder. Um, yeah, you can get it on Apple Podcasts or anything. One of my favorite uh, weird news stories is, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, 
But do you know, and I, I'm not going to be able to remember uh, the scientist's name right now, but in the 60s, NASA was trying to figure out how to, how we might talk to aliens. Um, of course, because that's what they were, you know, into because it was yeah. the 60s. Yeah. And one of their research projects was to f like essentially it was happened in St. Thomas, I believe they flooded in an apartment. So like they built a special apartment, it was half flooded. And then this scientist, this woman lived with a dolphin 24 seven. She would like sleep on a cot just above the water. Dolphin would sleep right below her. And then every day she would try and teach the dolphin to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love it. I love the sixties. I love NASA. Yeah. And, uh, and then eventually the dolphin fell in love with her <laughs> and I mean, she fell in love with the dolphin. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh yeah. And she would have to, um, she, it would be, it would get so sexually aroused when like they were, when she was trying to teach it that she would have to relieve it by giving it, jerking it off. Like this is all like in like record. Uh, so you jerk it off so that she could just, it could concentrate on learning to say like Apple. <laughs> so like, that's the, that's my favorite, one of our favorite strange news stories. Cause it's all real news. It's all the strangest things that have happened in the world. There's but that was, I think that's probably, that's probably the only time on, uh, so this gets put in a book, right? Everything I say that, that I said, jerk off a dolphin gets put in yeah. a book, right? Great. Yeah. And in case we missed it, <laughs> you just said it again, which is perfect. So that it stands on its own. I um, didn't make it up. It's not made up. This is, I'm talking about facts. You sound like a historian. I didn't make any of that stuff up. I just, I just dug it up out of the archives. Well, I was listening to one today that it was, it was some French aircraft engineer or something i don't know he he went on a test flight and um he got he got yes. kind of caught up he got afraid of what was going on and at high speed and he he pulled the ejector he was trying to hold on for dear life and then he ejected himself from the airplane it's so fun yeah and also but what makes that story uh even uh even more perfect is that he is he's a um like he's a defense contractor. He's he's an he's a weapons dealer. Yeah. So it's just like, oh yeah, this is like beautiful. This is so beautiful that the weapons dealer who's like he sells big guns, like then he gets in this, you know, that gets in the plane and can't handle it, so he just pulls his own jet. Yeah, I love it so much. So what are people? I mean, what kind of reaction are you, are you getting specifically because you're not trying to engage the pandemic? Pete, like the overwhelming response is I need like I need this podcast right now because of the darkness in the world, because it's uh, just a just a little sliver of just silly and just fun for an hour where, you know, because it is it does feel overwhelming. I was thinking about it today. I was talking with my wife is that I at this point I need trump to lose in order for me to feel sane like for me to because if he wins after all of the things that he's done then something something about the world i that is a fundamental break with how i understand reality do you know so i need him to yeah. lose otherwise like i'm gonna have like a psychic like the, the nothing makes sense anymore you know, so when you're under that kind of pressure, just on your normal every day, like to have something that's just a little, it's just a little sip of, sip of stupid tea. But it, it's, it's so necessary. And I, I connect so strongly with what you're saying about Trump, but it's not just him. I mean, he yeah, is, that's certainly true. The, he's certainly the ringleader, but the disconnection from reality is so intense. And you know, one of the things, it's not an original observation of mine, but I mean, when comedy works, it, it works, I think, because we have shared culture. And one of the mm -hmm. things that historians yeah. do when they think about comedy is try to find this very famous historian named Eric Darton, who wrote a, a book called The Great Cat Massacre. And it's a story of what he says, is the funniest thing that ever happened in this particular shop in Paris, in which the, the printers who work in this shop hold a mock trial for cats, and then they end up executing these cats. 
And they believed it was the funniest thing that had ever happened in that place. I mean, if you read it out of context, it's like, I don't know, this seems a little grim. And his point is that culture is held together, the sort of bonds of meaning and shared experience. And of course, we're not all sharing the same experience. Some of us have great privilege, others don't. It's not to say that, yeah. but that there are sort of cultural fundamentals that hold a society together in a given time and place. And humor thrives in that moment because it says, this is what you thought, but actually, what about this? I mean, there's, there's that aspect to it. Trump seems to be unlocking some sort of rupture in that, that I can't figure either. Yeah, no, it. it I agree 100%. And I honestly don't, it is, it is fascinating because I do have like, j even just on a very microscopic level of like, I have two Trump jokes when, when I do my hour, when I was touring before this. And I always leave them to the end of my set because it just goes one way or the other. It's either uproarious acceptance or it's dead silence. And that's like how I end the show. <laughs> <laughs> so it's either like they've had a nice time and then they leave hating the show or they, they, they it's like wonderful. Can you predict that based on like if you're playing in Jersey versus playing in Ohio or, or it's not that easy? It's not that easy. It's really a night. It's a night by night thing sometimes, you know? Um, yeah. Cause it just depends. It, it, it depends on so many different things. Can you find humor in what Trump has been up to with this pandemic? Are there are there ways into that that can bring some some levity? Yes. I mean, yes. every single day I think about his failures and I think about the two hundred ten thousand people who've died. And then last night he stands on the Truman balcony with his little thing with the mask, and I think that's a comedic gesture the guy is doing right. Yeah, now. there's something inherently funny about that, but it's so dark. Yeah, I, I can't grasp it. It is, first off, you can find humor in anything. Um, anything can be funny. I think what the issue is, is that um, the humor that you find in what he's doing right now re will really resonate if he loses. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But because it is like this encroaching wave of kind of like neo-fascism, it feels... It, it feels like uh, that, that it, it makes it almost impossible. It makes it, you're kind of trapped either way. Um, and also the fact that it changes so often is that he doesn't like, you can't pin him down. You can't be like, this is a crazy thing he did because tomorrow it will have doubled. Like it'll be an even more crazy thing. And now we're like in a land of like just Looney Tunes. Every single thing he does is insane. And so you can never kind of pin him down and be like, this one thing he did. Then that feels like that's difficult for satire. You know, to satirize him is difficult because have, he's already yeah. that. People have observed that he seems to hate more than anything being mocked or satirized. And so it puts comedians at this time in a kind of strange position too. I can't call her name at the moment, but she's been doing these 60 second long videos where yes. she takes an audio track. What's what's her name? Anyway, she does a 60 second bit of it. And all she does is is just- Say what he says. Yeah, she just pantomimes what he says with facial expression added. And it's killer, it's devastating. Yeah. I think that puts comedy in a position of power in this moment, doesn't it? It does, it can, um, but also I always push against that, that thing of like the, the, the modern day philosopher, the, the, the jester king, you know, that idea that like comedy is gonna, that we're, that we're out there like changing the world every single day. Like, yes, that can, that can be the case. Um, I think John Stewart was a great example of that. Um, but, you know, a lot of comedy is just uh, fart jokes. <laughs> so you can have like the highest, greatest part of comedy, but you can't leave out the fart jokes. Like the fart jokes are still there. Um, and so I always kind of like push against that, that like I, I, there is an art and there is a high art to comedy and it's beautiful when it gets there. But 
that's just the tip of the iceberg, the teeny tiniest tip of the iceberg, I think, and the majority of it's underwater. Let me ask you about timing a little bit, because um, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, after September 11, I have a distinct memory of the first SNL episode that came on after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure Rudy Giuliani was on it. And in fact, we got to, I think you were there. We got a big group of people together. We watched it together. Maybe in that one or one that came after that. And there was a lot of discussion at that time. Like, is it too soon? Can we laugh? Right. I remember now, there was irony dead. We're waiting. <laughs> is it, is it okay now or not? And what would be the first funny thing you could say about that collective experience? And I, I feel like we're kind of having that same moment now, except you know, 9-11 happened on a day, and this happens every single day yeah. in America since March. Where do you come down on this question of it being, what's the timing? What's the right moment in which you could actually there's no right there's no right moment it's mm. there's no too soon do you mean like that whole idea of too soon was born then you know mm. uh for 9-11 that was specifically made for people started saying too soon and still it's uh, very common i remember just to go back to that time i don't remember that first saturday night live i don't at all but i do remember the onions uh cover which was just a picture <laughs> of the plane hitting the towers, and then it just said, "Holy fucking shit!" <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> and that was, to me, that was like, Mwah, that's perfect. That's it. Nobody has to do a nine eleven joke after that." Um, <laughs> it was totally. It was because it was totally honest. Yes. It's yeah. What we had all said. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, the moment for it is, I don't know. Does it? Does it have to be over? You know. That yeah. does feel like like you're trying to make fun of the car accident as the car accident continually happens and changes. That's the tough part is that you need a target to hit. And when it's constantly morphing and shifting, the target, you know, you're just throwing stuff at a moving train. That's, I mean, it's why it feels to me like, I, mean, I guess we'd have to go back and look at like how, what kinds of comedy works during wartime. You know, some disaster that's sort of playing out every day yeah i think you'll find what the comedy that i think you'll find the majority of comedy that works during wartime is escapist really is absurd silly escapism so this is absolutely then i mean what you're talking about with bananas and the persistence of fart jokes and finding the absurd in this moment but also sorry to it's interrupt crucial. scott no yeah but also you know like you're talking to a person who who believe that before, you know what yeah. I mean? Like if you, you talk yeah. to a political comedian, they're going to have a much different, they'll think what I'm saying is total shit. Uh, I always love the absurd and the silly. That's where my, my soul is. Uh, so yeah, of course that's what, what I'm going to say. I mean, to the point at which I have seen you dressed up as a, larger than life i don't know were you chinguin or were you I was chunk half chicken half skunk half chicken half skunk i've seen yeah. that um i was unfortunately not in la when the how do i land skywriting happened you've done <laughs> billboards you've you bought books and written inscriptions and put them back in in bookstores i jet skied from chicago to new orleans what about greeting cards Oh yeah, I would buy greeting cards, take them home, put different endings to them, and then sneak them back into the snore and put them back on display. There's a bigger strategy with that, right? I mean, when when you're when you're bringing the absurd into people's lives, even in those highly bespoke ways, like one mm -hmm. person is going to find this yeah. absurd thing. Maybe, maybe they'll find it. You know, <laughs> what's that about? Oh, that was always about. I, I think. At that time, I had really defined my reason for existence as a comedian of like inserting absurdity into strangers' lives in order to make the world a better place. And it was kind of a riff on what we were trying to do with Changwin and Chunk. So Changwin was this half chicken, half penguin. Chunk was a half chicken, half skunk. They were half brothers. There were these tall, nine foot tall costumes that my friend Matt Murphy made. And they would meet in the middle of the city and just like bump into each other and lots of people would come and cheer them on. This was in 1999. And that our idea there was that 
we would love to take this public space that is defined in people's minds is really what we're talking about with psychogeography. Whereas like this, this space for, for this person is like my walk to work or my walk to the subway, or this is right in front of my favorite deli. And that's how they've defined it. And then we wanted to be able to like chain, push that out to now it's chicken, giant chicken fight arena to like physic to, to psychologically change the space Right. With these crazy things that just happen and then disappear with no reason. And we thought the absurdity of that was just so beautiful. Um, and I think that where I did with the how do I land and with the greeting cards, that that stuff came from kind of the same place of being able to kind of like reinvent those public spaces for a moment, for even if it's one person. I've been thinking about that, though, in terms of the lockdown and the restricted movement that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, in these times, I mean, what absurd potential is there in the pandemic that sort of opens up this same kind of possibilities? I mean, I've been trapped in my house, yeah. basically my neighborhood. I have one running route that I do. I have lots I could do, but I've just settled on one. I've gotten locked in. Even with my constricted environment, yes. I've made it even more constricted somehow. I go to yeah. one room to do a certain thing. <laughs> I need some of that absurdity and disruption, even in this little constricted environment that I'm yeah. in, I feel like. No, I think we all do. It's tough, though, that most of our the constrictions happening in our private homes, you know? Just want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and talking with Kurt Brownler today about comedy and the pandemic. Get your questions in if you want to on YouTube live and you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of disaster. So um, I wanted to make sure two other things I want to make sure we get to. One is that uh, you and your wife, Lauren, uh, did a podcast uh, series of them called Wedlock. Mm -hmm. And that was out a couple of years ago. And can you say a little bit about that? Because that's been on, I've gone back and looked those, listened to a couple of those and thought about that because it is about intensely examining marriage. Yeah, it was, it was right after we got married that we, I think we might've even, did we start before we got married? I don't know. Um, but yeah, we were taught, it was just, it was a kind of, each episode would take one theme or issue of involved with a person being, you know, involved with another human being and kind of examine that. We had one on monogamy where uh, we kind of talked about, we, we, we spoke with a woman, a cam woman, cam woman, cam girl, uh, who, you know, has all of these relationships with these married men, but it is strictly through them typing things and watching her uh, and whether or not like that was a, was a cheating. Um, we went and saw a bunch of, uh, of bonobos who are a matriarchal uh, line of primates that have sex over like 65 times a day. They use sex as barter and, uh, and greetings and thank you. It's, it's amazing. Like we went and watched, they literally have sex just constantly all the time. And they're very close to chimpanzees uh, genetically, but chimpanzees fight all the time for dominance and they use sex for dominance and to like keep the social mm. order in check. And so it was kind of like, it was kind of fun stuff like that, where we were kind of like investigating relationships, but from all these unexpected uh, angles. I've been thinking about it because, you know, again, people are finding themselves spending so much, those who, again, are not essential workers have to be out there on the front lines. People are spending a lot more time with family. Oh, they're, yeah. They're with roommates. They're with those roommates. I mean, the oh, yeah. intensification of relationships through this six months is going to be, I think, one of the most long-lasting impacts of this pandemic. Yeah, if you were, like, if you wanted to know whether or not you needed to get a divorce, like, the pandemic let you know. I got right. a bunch of friends who are getting divorced. Oh. <laughs> 
I, I was thinking of it the other way. Like if you wanted to, to know that this person you're engaged to is definitely the right person for you, the pandemic had shown you. Yeah, but that's yeah. the same thing. We're saying the exact yeah. same it's thing. It's the opposite, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's just it like, and if not, then you can kind of probably survive anything. Once you can go outside, once you can go somewhere, I mean, like the pressure is going to be off. It's going to be easy. It's so funny. And there's been, you know, back to sort of a version of like the places you've missed or the little routines you've yeah. missed. Have there been, I think of people I know from work who I really don't even know them. Yeah. And like, I might even walk past them once a week for 10 years, but I miss, there's some of them I'm like, I really want to see, I want to have that one kind of awkward interaction that we always have, like at the elevator or whatever. Like yeah. I kind of miss that to a certain yeah. Oh, of course. The, the most embarrassing thing I think I miss is the mall. Uh, that Cause now that we have kids, like I, yeah. I always hated the mall. I grew up in Jersey. So I like growing up, I love the mall. Yeah, and then yeah, I came like turning, you know, once I left Jersey, I was yeah. like, I hate the mall. Wow. Yeah. And then I had kids. And in and Southern California is like the land of the open air mall with like yeah, big yeah. fountains and bands playing <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. And you know, we would we used to go with the kids and we could get a drink and they could go to we go to the bookstore and like, you know, get a book and get some food. And that was just such a pleasant, you know, thing where we didn't have to worry, you know, it was just so nice. And now that's the one thing, that's the thing I keep thinking about. Like, if we go to the mall right now, this would be fine. <laughs> But instead we can't, so we just get in the car and drive them around until they start crying and then come back home. Like that's an event for a Saturday is to drive in circles for 30 minutes. That's your, that's your LA psychogeography now. You get in the <laughs> yeah. car and just drive. Different just drive. <laughs> but that again, that's a problem with the fire. You can't do that. So then you're just walking yeah. around the apartment. Yeah. We're almost up on time. I wanted to make sure we, uh, we leave time because I um, I have a lot of your work that I'm a huge fan of, but you have a pretty recent bit, which I'm an enormous fan of, which I think actually kind of tells us a lot about the time we're in, and it's about the bees. Yes. I, I don't want to put you on the spot to do the bit, but- could, I can't do could, the bit. Can you tell us a little bit about the bees? <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of asking me to be, do no, the no, bit. Don't, don't hold it. Okay. It, it actually it's one of these news stories right i mean you found it as oh yeah yeah. there was a woman in, it was a woman in decatur georgia who like heard some buzzing and so called the city <laughs> and it turns out she had a hundred and twenty thousand bees yeah. living in her ceiling yeah uh so the bit is all about yeah. why i no longer tweet political stuff at trump uh uh, but it involves essentially the measurements of uh, different amounts of bees. Like what? What? Because like the whole the whole idea of the the bit is like I don't know about you, but I feel like if I see five bees, I'm like, there's a lot of bees here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we should do something about our bee problem. You know, it's just about America not noticing that we're slowly sliding into a fascist oligarchy it's been on my mind in so many different ways. You know, I read the statistics at the beginning of every COVID calls. I mean, it's very powerful, just the numbers. It, it is, but it's also, it's like the, it's, it's like the bees. It's like, at what point? Yeah. You know, you remember, or like, oh, I remember when it was a hundred and then a thousand, and then it was a nine 11s worth of people. And then, and these different measures We're right now we're halfway to a world war two. At what point does the outrage, like the bees, sort of bust through the ceiling and you say, we've really got a problem here? And I and I know many Americans are saying that, and many yeah. people outside of the United States are saying that to us and for us, but not enough people somehow. It's crazy. I mean, November 3rd. Like, that's when things will seem, you know, like, I mean, it's, I say November 3rd and it's, Regardless of what happens, that's the that's that's I think if even if Trump loses, Trump doesn't go away. Trump still exists. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit on, on email. Like he still is there. And I I do honestly worry about some version of uh, pitched battles in the streets. Everybody's got guns now. And because of these uh, because of these neural nets that run social media, we all 
live in completely different realities. And so I, I fear, I fear that there's just going to be fighting in the streets between people who don't, who are fighting over two totally different things, two versions of reality. And that there's still, it's kind of back to what you were saying before that you, you, and I, I, I pull out the same hope that November 4th, we wake up and we've kind of just sort of, we snap back into something that's more recognizable about the world. I grew up, grew up, you and I have grown up in an America that fights over all manner of stupid things. I mean, it's kind of democracy in action is to argue about every single thing. We slip past that, but we come back to some sort of shared experience right. after that. Right. And then what do you think happens after that? How does repair work? I mean, it's kind of the last thing I want to ask you. I mean, again, it's like, we're going to need all hands to repair what's been done in this country in the last four years. Yeah. I, I have, I also, I don't know. I don't know because I recently, I tweeted during the debates when he was not, uh, when he was already decrying the legitimacy of voting during the debates, I was like, Oh, I tweeted something like, Oh God, like this is, this is how democracy dies. And the amount of people who responded good, can't wait, not soon enough. And I was just like, are these like right-wing fascists? And so then I started just like taking a selection of them and like, what do you think comes after democracy? Like seeing what it was. And it, the two, at least the two people I asked, they were like hardcore, crazy left-wing. Like they were like imagining a pan-utopian anarchy, like, like what did one, like Liechtenstein, one of them was like, like a hundred Liechtensteins or something. And I was just like, oh, these are like, it's coming from the left and from uh, the right. I this see. like, uh, this, I can't, I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand like, sure, democracy is slow and it's inefficient and it sucks often, but it's like the best system, by far the best system we've got yeah. going. Like, why is that the thing that people, uh, it's, I'm, I'm, Ah, no, I crazy. think it's, well, it's, 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 I don't know where you put the blame. It would be too many causes, but it's like Americans, have, they love to play dress up. They love fantasy. Yep. A lot of people, there's been so much wealth and infrastructure and things that have worked so well for so long that people can tour around with these ideas that if you just, I think Trump's yeah. the same thing, let's blow it all. We love him because he doesn't play by any rule. He blows everything up. I'm like, well, what do you think is left after all? After you blow up? Because he's, he's, he's the president. Like, it's not just like play, play time anymore. Yeah. It's like, it's, we're just seeing the results of, of decades of defunding education combined with like these, these like massive AIs that are just targeted at our, our, our brains that are like not not by any by, by any fault of anyone's really just like kind of like whoopsie doodles we made a bunch of fascists <laughs> I, so okay, I crazy to, i have to lighten this up before i let you go <laughs> just just so people know kurt and i have done things like 24 hour road trips where we walk around new york city with our friend calvin johnson for 24 hours and the conversations kind of do have this ebb and flow right i yeah. mean in the ceiling fascism creeping could all get <laughs> fart jokes have you been able to get in in the water are you surfing i was i was we actually spent all month uh of august in ventura like uh, a couple blocks from the ocean so i surfed a whole bunch then but i just had knee surgery so i'm out of the water for three months um and just uh, doing physical therapy right now but yeah can't wait can't wait to get back in there I mean, I didn't surf for most of the pandemic just because I had just had a child. I was like, had a child, pandemic hit, and then it was like, had a second child. So it was just like, we were in it and it was going crazy. So that's another thing, like add to the pandemic, like pandemic, but then also not sleeping. And then that was pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. That's Well, the good news of that is with a recent child, you won't remember any of this. Exactly. So. It's perfect. <laughs> Kurt, thanks a lot for coming on COVID Calls. Thank you. Hope I wasn't too dark. 
No, I mean, I had to bring on a comedian <laughs> to bring it really down into the dark, <laughs> into the depths. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to remind everybody that you can catch COVID calls every weekday at five o'clock. And tomorrow we're going to talk to Rebecca Onion, who's a science writer and historian of science uh, for Slate Magazine. So please join me for that. And Kurt, stay well. Thank you, Scott. Okay. Stay me healthy, too. everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock. <laughs>